Hannah Davis. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Hello. Um, it feels great to be able to interview somebody who is also in Ottawa for a change. You are doing your PhD in biology at the at Carleton University. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So for the non-scientists who are listening, they're like, oh, Hannah is a scientist. For other people who are listening who have a science background, how would you explain uh, exactly what it is that you study? So right now I'm in a lab that does thermal physiology, um, in my case, using fruit flies, Drosophila melanogaster. Um, it essentially boils down to making them cold, not frozen, just cold, and then seeing what happens to their bodies. Um, okay. So I have mostly been looking at um, kind of what temperatures different populations will essentially shut down. They go into a chill coma. Uh, but I have plans to hopefully do some, some work looking at the effects of cold and other stressors on the uh, renal organs and other aspects of their biology. So fruit flies, that, that already <laughs> is interesting because I think the average person you know, really doesn't like fruit flies. Um, I do know that they're they're kind of a, a marvel of science, aren't they? Yeah, they are essentially the model organism. So they're very easy to keep in the lab, very easy to breed. I think most people have the experience of accidentally breeding large numbers of them in their own kitchen. And a lot is known about their genetics and just their biology in general. And so that means when you want to study something new, they are quite a useful species to work with. So why, why exactly are you studying uh, the effects of cold on fruit flies? Like what got you into this? Essentially, I, I read about the, the, the lab and uh, got into it from there. <laughs> Um, this is, it's not something which I invented. This is a field which has existed for quite a while, existed for quite a while. And, um, I, I found out about the PhD position, read up on it, discovered that there's this whole world of finding out how cold affects insects and, uh, decided to give it a shot. That's interesting because I find that scientists either go into something because it's deeply personal. So a lot of scientists, especially scientists who uh, study medicine, you know, they've had a family member become sick from this weird illness and they become a specialist in that. You uh, have chosen something just out of pure interest and curiosity. Yeah. Well, I had, I, I've been interested in insects for quite a while. I did my master's with termites. And so I knew I wanted to continue working with insects, but I was somewhat flexible about what I would end up doing with insects. Like I, I, I'm interested in many aspects of their biology. So um, learning new things about them in, in this case, in a different species, um, a different field, because with termites, I was doing some kind of behavioral stuff. Um, I just find that really cool. Have you always been into um, little creatures? Um, to some extent. I think I got more serious about it in my 20s. But even as a child, well, like most children, I liked watching bugs. Right. It's I, th I think it's really cool that you're doing it as a grown up. Um, I'm, I'm curious about a term that you used. You said uh, chill coma. So can you describe yeah. exactly what's going on when that when that happens? Um, I could go into a lot of detail, but instead, <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to keep it simple. So I think 
a lot of people have probably noticed that in the fall, you'll often see insects on the ground and they're alive, but they're not really moving very much. Like you'll see bees and wasps on the ground often like this. Um, or sometimes you'll find a beetle and it looks like it's dead, but if you take it inside, then all of a sudden it kind of comes back to life. This is because in the cold, uh, insects' bodies slow down. And at a certain point, the brain actually shuts off and the muscles shut off and the um, insect is then unable to move. But this is typically a, um, a temporary state. So if you bring it back into a, into a warm house, for example, then it can wake up again. Um, okay. So, but why, why do we want to study that? Is it because there might be applications for humans or is it just because we find it fascinating? So it is basic research, meaning there are unlikely to be direct applications. However, understanding how insects respond to cold is relevant if we want to understand how they might respond to climate change, for example. So there's some, well, a lot of insects actually are restricted in where they can live based on the, the climate. So, okay. so that's one reason to try and understand that. Another reason is that certain insects are used um, for biocontrol, for example. So little wasps are used to control caterpillars on um, in agriculture. And if you're shipping those little wasps, often they're being shipped at a cold temperature and we wanna understand how that's gonna affect them too. So there are, there are definitely applications, but those applications are downstream from where I am. Um, I'm really on, uh, on the side of just trying to understand how things work. Right. So what have you found so far? What's the coldest temperature that a fruit fly can tolerate? That's not an easy question for me to answer anyway, because that's not actually what I've been doing. <laughs> um, so what I, um, what I have been doing, and I actually just um, we just submitted a, a paper on this um, was looking at different cold tolerance traits in different populations of fruit flies and the populations we had them in the lab but they were originally derived from flies that were collected in different parts of Europe and Africa and we were interested in how those populations differed in cold tolerance and the what we ended up finding out was that if you compare their ability to survive a mild chronic cold stress, so we had them at four degrees just for four days, um, there's, there are really obvious differences. So, so we had a French population and an Egyptian population, and the French population just survived so much better than the Egyptian population. It was quite obvious. Um, I tried to I, I tried to um, use, I, like I numbered my, my vials so I wouldn't know which line was which when I was recording the data, but it was it was obvious. Um, however, when I compared them on some other cold tolerance traits, like the temperature at which they go into a chill coma, they were all kind of the same. And so that was really interesting because there are examples of other insects where a species, for example, that's from the north will go into a chill coma at a much lower temperature than a species that's from somewhere warm. So it was interesting just that, you know, they, they differ based on one trait, but then not others. Um, and that was a bit of a surprise because typically they'll either, like they'll be more cold tolerant based on a whole bunch of different traits, or they just suck based on a whole bunch of different traits. <laughs> okay. So, you, but you actually 
can usually induce a chill coma at, at about four degrees Celsius. For, for fruit flies, yeah. Like once once they get down to four. Um, so four is like a little bit below their chill coma onset temperature typically. Um, but you do sometimes have some, like if you if you pre-treat them in certain ways, you can reduce that temperature. And um, th there there is definitely some variation with like some, there are some populations which do have lower chill coma onset temperatures than others, just not the ones we were working with. Okay, and and the ones within the ones that you were working with, what's the um, the most hardy species that you found so far? So this is all within one species, actually. Oh, yeah. Okay. So that that was that's kind of um, yeah. So so there other people have looked at different species, um, but uh, we we kind of decided to go well. Okay, that's interesting. But what happens when you look within one species? Okay, so one species, if I'm understanding correctly, that was bred in different environments. Yes, yes. Gotcha. Like, yeah. Okay. So, so like okay. fruit flies, this one species of fruit flies all over the world, um, and different populations have evolved separately from each other in different environments. And then what has that done to them within just within one species? That's actually really cool. Now, now that I, I really understand it, um, it must be exciting for you to it, it sounds like it's something that you enjoy doing isn't it? isn't it well playing with bugs is fun <laughs> but also conducting experiments yeah so I've, I've been out of the lab unfortunately for a while but uh in the before times um yeah it was fun <laughs> <laughs> so what 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 happens right now like because you can't go into the lab um what happens to your research a lot of stuff is on hold, unfortunately for me. Uh, so some, so other members of the lab are going in, and so they're able to continue their work. Um, but uh, I've been, well, recently I've been working on this manuscript, which which we finally submitted. Um, otherwise, trying to plan new experiments, which right. hopefully other people will help me with. <laughs> <laughs> um. So outside of fruit flies, let's talk a little bit about termites, only because I actually don't know a whole lot about them. Um, I think I know a little bit more about ants. I've seen a lot of ant documentaries, not so much the termite. Um, let's start with a little bit of plain English stuff right now, which is what's the difference between an ant and a termite? A lot. <laughs> so... Let's see, how can I put this into plain English? <laughs> They're very distantly related. So termites are actually social cockroaches. Uh, ants are more closely related to like flies and beetles and well, also, well, even more closely related to bees and wasps, actually, because ants, bees and wasps are all kind of in the same order. Um, and so for anyone who remembers some biology, uh, there's this uh, big divide between hemimetabolists and holometabolist insects. And the hemimetabolist insects are the one, are ones like um, well, yeah, termites, cockroaches, grasshoppers are a, a common example where they don't have any kind of pupil stage. The, the, the babies look very much like the adults, except without wings and smaller. And so a little baby grasshopper, you can still tell it's a grasshopper and then it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and then eventually it gets wings and then it's just a typical grasshopper. With the holometabolous insects, so those would be so bees, ants, wasps, 
flies, beetles, butterflies. They have a larval stage, which looks nothing like the adults. So with flies, the, the baby is a maggot. It's just this, this uh, little squishy thing with typically no legs. And then there's a pupil stage and then it turns into the adult, which looks, yeah, completely different. With flies, they typically have wings. Um, in butterflies, you have, you have caterpillar and then you have a chrysalis and then you have the butterfly. So, so these are just these, these two like fundamental categories of insects and termites are on one side and ants on the other side. I actually, so this is really surprising to me. I didn't know that they were that distantly yeah. um, related in, in a way um, because they look kind of similar, right? I mean, they kind yeah. of have a similar structure, I guess. Um, what about, so let, let's compare their body structure, ants and termites, same amount of number of legs. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and yeah. torso, head, all that stuff. What's the difference? Uh, well, ants. Hmm. So, so one one thing is that ants have um, a waist, which termites don't have. So that that's oh. certainly one thing. Um, ants, I think, are more frequently dark colored. Termites, a lot of them are are light colored and also really squishy. But there, there's some variation. Like you do also have some dark color termites, and there are some ants that can be different colors too. So, I'd I'd say it's like it's the the shape of the body is is different. Also, the antennae. Ants, I think all of them have these elbowed antennae, whereas termites, it's more just like like a string of beads. It's it's not. It doesn't have a a clear elbow in it. Oh, wow. Okay. And you, you just called termites social cockroaches, which is yes. really interesting because the cockroach is my favorite creature. I love them. I think they're fascinating. I think they're cool. I think the research into antibiotics, um, you know, that, that we've researched them for antibiotic uh, production. Um, they're hardy. They can survive almost anything. Um, in what way are termites more closely related to cockroaches? They are cockroaches. They're just really weird cockroaches. So this this was something which was discovered through genetic research, I think maybe 2010, I'm not certain. Um, although it's been suspected for a while just because of certain of similarities, um, like some other similarities between certain cockroach species and termites. But but yeah, they they are cockroaches. They are they are nested within that group. So are they as hardy as as cockroaches? They can survive no. really extreme. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> they are they are they are very squishy. Okay. Um, no, they, they a lot of things eat them. They they're definitely not super tough. However, they make up for that with in some cases massive colonies and just big numbers. Yeah, let's talk about their colonies, because I know that, um, don't they have like a really interesting kind of class uh, structure? Yeah. Or I don't know what you call it. Yeah, it's a caste system. Okay. Um, so this this depends on the on the termite species. So there there is a fair amount of variety here. The species that I worked with, the Eastern Subterranean Termite, is one that's found in Eastern North America and also invasive in some other countries. It It is in Ontario, but... Southern Ontario, so Toronto and some areas around there. Um, it has not reached Ottawa, but it's not too far away. 
And with this, this is one of the, uh, I believe it's one of the so-called, um, I think it's one of the higher termites. And it has, so they have, um, they have workers, they have nymphs, um, and they have the uh, you know, king and the queen. The fact that there's a king there is another interesting I difference just, from Edge. I was just like staring at you right now because I was like, wait a minute, they have a king? They do, so tell, yeah. Tell me more, tell me more. Yeah, so so termites in general, they, unlike ants, so an ant, an ant queen will mate and then the, the male will die and the queen is able to kind of store enough sperm to you know, last as long as it, need, as it needs to last. Termites don't do that. So the king and the queen have to keep on mating in order to have more offspring. And, uh, and so they do. <laughs> How is the king chosen? You'd have to ask one of the queens. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, so they have, they'll have a, a, a nuptial flight where they will, um, I think they, they land and drop their wings and they pair up and then like they, follow each other and then find a place to to start a colony I haven't actually seen this so when I was working with them um the I was working with lab colonies which never produced these winged reproductives but uh this is from what I remember that that's how it works so wait so lab colonies don't behave the same way they would in nature not necessarily they might not get the same cues um so I, I, I remember, so the, the, we had lab colonies of a whole bunch of different species. And some of those species did produce winged reproductives from time to time, but I'm not sure what, what cues they were using, like whether it was light cues, because they were in a basement room, but there were, there were small windows. And so they might've been getting day length information from that. Um, I think some species, rainfall is also a cue, so I, I seem to remember that at least some species will emerge after rain, probably because then it's easier for them to dig into the ground. I'm I'm not sure. This right. is this is not my my specialty. This is just kind of half remembered stuff. <laughs> but still, I mean, I think it's really cool that you got to actually kind of observe like whole colonies, learn more about them, even the stuff that you're not researching. I'm sure there's things sometimes that you notice that you kind of like jot down just because it's it's curious. Yeah. Well, I, I definitely love just watching termites. So when they're in their in their nest, they are very well hidden. So they're going to be under. They're going to be in the soil. They're going to be in wood. Depends on the species as to exactly how and where they live. But the species I was working with, they have in the wild. They'll have these massive, massive colonies um, that are in both yeah soil and wood, and they're very good at keeping hidden. Um, hmm. So, aren't there also yeah. soldiers? Oh yes, yes. Oh, sorry, I didn't mention those. Um, yeah, okay. I just heard about it sometimes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I, I, as I work, I'm trying to remember how their evolution worked. But I seem to remember that it's thought that the soldier class evolved before the other the other castes, um, which is also kind of interesting because. I think virtually all termites have soldiers. There might be some exceptions, but with ants, I don't think that having soldiers is so typical for them. Some of them definitely do, but I don't, 
I, I think that that was more something that evolved later on with some ants, whereas with termites, it saw that that happened early. And the soldiers, they just protect the, the king and queen, right? They protect the colony. Oh, they protect the whole colony. Okay. Yeah. So one of our lab colonies was, um, it was, oh, I'm trying to remember the, the name of the species. It was, it was one of those species that builds those like really massive uh, termite mounds in, I think, somewhere in Africa or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the lab, unfortunately, they don't build those huge structures, but they, they, they still build some stuff. And they it's a fairly large species and they the soldiers are quite impressive because they they are quite large a lot larger than the workers and they also will be stationed at kind of the entrances to tunnels and they respond to sound so i really like to go into their room and just say very loudly hello <laughs> and <laughs> they would headbang and you'd hear this this audible rattling sound of the soldiers um, sending out an alarm signal by headbanging. Whoa, like they, they bang their heads on what? On the ground? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, like on wow. whatever so straight. <laughs> oh, that is so cool. And that, that headbanging is actually a, a, a very common termite alarm signal. So the smaller ones do it too. I, I'm not sure if all termites do it, but certainly the ones that I was working with did. And But the ones I worked with are, are smaller, so you, I didn't hear it very often, just sometimes. Um, the workers also communicate through vibration. So sometimes they'll shake their whole bodies and uh, something called jittering. <laughs> but we don't really understand what that means. Sometimes it seems to be alarm, but sometimes they seem to be communicating something else. Oh, wow. So there's a lot of research left to do on termites, obviously. Oh, definitely, definitely. And uh, I am by no means an expert. I, I was privileged to work on them for a couple of years, and I still love them. But uh, there are many others who know a lot more than me. What do you feed termites in the lab? So in, like, to, okay, so we had some some rooms where we were keeping them long term. Um or rather I should say, it, this this is actually a facility in Germany called the BAM, and they have had this termite rearing thing going on for decades. So they are experts here. I, I was very lucky to be able to use their facilities. Um, so in, in those, those long-term rearing rooms, the termites are fed wood. So just like logs, or in some cases for some species where they're kept in smaller containers, they were just given little blocks of wood. Okay, um, because yeah. that's what they usually assign of termites is that they're eating the wood in the house, right? Yes, yes. Mm. Um, for experiments, we would often give them filter paper to eat uh, because then we could put some plexiglass or some other glass on top of the filter paper and then actually see them digging little tunnels in, in, into the filter paper and we, then we could observe them. But uh, filter paper is not best diet for termites it's fine for for an experiment but you don't want to keep them on that long term okay and so were you also studying cold tolerance in termites no i wasn't i was looking at how they responded to a fungal disease oh interesting and what did you discover so i was interested in their behavioral immunity so this is how they use behaviors to protect their colony and 
more specifically, I was interested in how at different stages of infection, they will use different behaviors. So early in the infection, they will groom their nest mates like, and they're basically physically removing the fungal spores and they're, they're able to swallow those fungal spores safely. But if the spores are left kind of on the outside of their bodies, then it can go very badly. So, so it, it's good for them to groom those off. But then later in the infection, they, they'll still do some grooming, but then they also uh, start switching to cannibalism. Wait. Okay, hold on, hold on. You're saying grooming as in they clean each other? Yep, yep. <laughs> it's Wait, adorable. Wait, turtles have tongues? Do they have mm-hmm. tongues? They don't have tongues, no. They've got a lot of mouth parts, though, and uh, a lot more mouth parts than we do, and it works. <laughs> I need to find a video of this because it's almost unbelievable. Yeah, I'll, I think social insects in general tend to groom each other, at least to some extent. I, I'm not sure exactly how that works with ants and bees and wasps but um keeping each other clean and keeping themselves clean is is important for for social insects especially just because of the risk of disease spread within their colonies and how do you like what kind of diseases are we talking about here so for for termites fungal diseases are a big threat because they're living in soil and rotting wood and their tunnels are this lovely climate controlled, very moist environment, which is perfect for fungi. Of course, of course. And then they, they do they usually all succumb to it? The, the fungus which we are working with is very deadly. So if they, if you, if you inoculate just one termite with, well, you don't actually need to use all that much, um, that termite will die. Um, I was using pretty high doses in, in my experiment, um, cause I wanted to kind of evoke a strong reaction from the non-infected termites and, uh, yeah, it, they're pretty good at grooming it off and getting rid of it. But if you up the dose high enough, then it will kill them all. Wow. So, you know what, I've just made a connection here. What I find really interesting is that you have studied termites, and now you're studying fruit flies, which are two cre- two types of creatures that usually we exterminate. <laughs> well, that wasn't intentional, but I think, <laughs> I think that pest insects often do make good uh, study subjects, partly because you could typically breed them in fairly large numbers. <laughs> um, does it uh, does it bother you, though, when people exterminate, you know, insects, or does it just make sense to you? It bothers me when it's not necessary. Mm-hmm. Like, when people just kill insects because they don't like them. That I don't like that. But there are times when you need to. Um, if termites are eating your house, that is dangerous. They can... Yeah, in, like the the um, the species I worked with, they will just hollow that wood out, and that could be something could collapse. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, are there? So you said that the termites that you studied were mostly like native to southern Ontario. Are there any termites in Ottawa? Uh, not that I know of. Um, and I don't okay. think they're, they're, I'm not sure if they're native per se to Southern Ontario, but I think it's kind of, as far as I know, it's um, 
Well, they're definitely native to the US just south of the border. Um, I'm not certain how they moved into Canada, but um, yeah, I, I don't know if they're, I wouldn't really call them invasive per se. I think it's more just range expansion. At some point they were just able to get a little bit further north because they're, okay. they're quite common in the Eastern US. It's kind of like uh, American cockroaches, which are the you know the big the big ones, the big cockroaches. And uh, I was I remember speaking with somebody who worked in pest control, and I asked him. I said, "Hey, I said, have you ever seen those in the wild in Ottawa?" And he said, "Actually, I have. Mm. I have. I've seen them in. I'm not going to say where because <laughs> it's a bit of a trade secret. But there is one location in Ottawa that has them pretty often." Um, but I do find them, I, I find cockroaches. Have you have you ever studied cockroaches? I haven't, but I know people who have. And okay. I find them very interesting. However, I will say that the, the, the room, like the room where they are kept at any facility that studies them is the worst room. The smell, oh my goodness, is <laughs> the worst. Really? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not sure exactly where the smell comes from. And I don't think it's all species that smell, but certainly some of the ones that people work with in Germany, um, it's it's intense. Uh, I, I once visited um, a facility where they were doing a lot of animal testing um, on like lots of different animals, like pest species. I think that the institute was um, they they. I think it was it was some government institute and it had something to do with like testing I think pest pest control stuff so anyway they had just like every species of pest and so they had rodents they had I think they even had pigeons um like all the all this kind of stuff and the rodent rooms were were, were pretty smelly um they were keeping their rodents in quite good conditions actually like I I've you know, I had this like idea of what animal research facilities would look like, and it was nothing like that. They were, um, you know, they had lots of nesting material, places to hide. The the one of the species of rats that they had had this like climbing gym, pretty much that was that took up a high ceilinged room, and you could see these little little groups of rats kind of peering out of boxes at the their the visitors. That room smelled like the worst public bathroom you could imagine so just very strong <laughs> smell of urine but i could handle it then when we started going through the insect rooms the cockroach room i could barely get through the door it wow. was just the strongest smell of vomit and it was horrible i again i don't know which species it was they had a, they had several in there but whatever it was it was bad <laughs> I think uh, it's just cool that you had the experience to go visit a place like that yeah it was um, part of a course that I was taking um I guess the professor had some connections and uh, so we got to go on a field trip and it was really cool <laughs> cool so what what led you to studying in in Germany so I actually dropped out of university in Canada um I was trying to do computer science and at some point realized that much as I love computers much as I love coding, it was not something I wanted to do long-term and I just burned out really, really badly and ended up dropping out. Then I decided that, well, what tiny amount of money I had left, I might as well use it to go to Europe because I'd been wanting to do that for a while. And I figured if I was going to be broke and miserable, I might as well do it in another country. <laughs> uh, 
after being in Germany for a couple of years and improving my German, I found out that universities there do not have tuition. And oh, so right. I decided to just give it another shot. And so I applied to study biology at a German university. Miraculously, they actually let me in, even though I was already a dropout. And uh, I, I ended up getting both my bachelor's and my master's there. Oh, wow. I actually didn't know that about you. Huh. So you did your, your, your bachelor's and your, and your master's in Germany, and you decided to come back to Canada? Yeah. Yeah. Um, for a few reasons. Part of it was just wanting to come back to Canada, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, part of it was uh, finding out, out about this, this PhD opportunity and thinking it sounded really good. And, and then it just happened to be in Ottawa, which is where I'm from. Um, I was also partly motivated by Brexit because one of the w- ways I was able to live in Germany was because I've got dual citizenship. I'm British and Canadian. And I didn't like the idea of staying in Germany, but not having nearly as many rights. Right. Um, I could have, I could have, you know, applied for some status that would let me stay there, but I wouldn't be able to vote anymore. And I just didn't want to deal with that. I didn't want to suddenly go from being, well, from having rights to not having rights. Right. And I think, um, I mean, let me know if you agree with the statement, but I think having done education overseas brings you a perspective that a lot of Canadian students don't have. Um, I think so. Uh, it certainly gives me a perspective on what it's like to be an international student. Mm-hmm. Right. And did you find that you got, um, I guess, mentorship and experience with professors that you probably wouldn't have had in Ottawa? Um, I don't know. I, I think that certainly I met different people, but even here, there are professors from different countries. Right. So over there, of course, I, I got to meet a lot more German professors. And there are certainly cultural differences between German universities and Canadian universities. But, you know, you do meet a, a wide variety of people here as well. Um. Give me an example of, of a cultural difference between a German university and a Canadian university. Um, I think there's just there's a different approach to education. Um, so one thing which really surprised me when I started studying at the um, German university was, you know how in, in Canadian universities, there's always like this huge bookstore where they sell like all this university branded stuff and it's like all this big deal. Over there, the closest equivalent was like, it was basically just this this tidy little boutique kind of area across from a coffee shop in one of the the buildings. Um, it was, it had fairly short hours. There was just one person working there. Um, they sold a small variety of t-shirts. Not very much. <laughs> so it's less uh, kind of less big business. Yeah. Of. Yeah. Also, um, no sports facilities at my university. Oh, so that was another thing. Yeah. And there was also a lot less um, like a stupid competition between universities. Mm. I'm not going to say there's no competition, but over there, it's 
like the students are not encouraged to hate the other university in town, which is unfortunately the case here. Mm. Um, it's just, you know, I liked my university. The other university in the city was also good. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, that is definitely interesting. Um, you know, having been out of out of that world for a long time, uh, it's good to get a an idea of what what universities are like. Yeah. Not just these days, but also the different cultures. Yeah, and some other things. Um, so over there, it's the norm to have one hundred percent of your grade come from a final exam, which Ooh. actually suited, which actually worked pretty well for me because, like, I test pretty well, but I have a much harder time kind of keeping up high doing high quality work throughout the, the the semester so so for me it's like I, I will often um in the Canadian system like I'll screw up on some early assignment and then it'll just destroy my self-confidence because like well I've already I've already oh. messed up my average um but in Germany like I would be a complete idiot up until about a week before the exam and then I would study like crazy and uh do well <laughs> But I realized yeah. that not everyone works this way, and uh, I was I was lucky that the system did work for me. You are are you somebody who I guess you've always enjoyed schooling? Uh, I I've always enjoyed learning. Um, right. Not I haven't always enjoyed school, but I've I've definitely always enjoyed learning. Okay. Um, aside from from school uh, cultural differences. Um, what about the difference in creatures, nature, fauna? Uh, is there something that you discovered in Germany out in nature that doesn't exist in Canada? Lots of stuff. <laughs> like um, what? Well, one, one example, which I was actually just thinking about earlier today, is mistletoe. So, Mi Really? So uh, there, there is a mistletoe species, like, well, something else that we call mistletoe anyway, that is in North America, but um, like the stereotypical mistletoe is is native to Europe, I believe. And in, in Berlin, you just you see it in like every park, it, the trees would be full of it. And okay, so now I have to ask, do people have that the custom of kissing each other under the mistletoe there? I'm actually not certain. Um, huh curious I, they certainly don't do it under every tree Yes, <laughs> <laughs> not and one reason why I'm not certain is that actually when I was over there I usually went to the UK for Christmas because that's where I've got a lot of relatives and so I don't know actually a lot about German Christmas traditions I know I know some stuff like Christmas markets for example are one amazing German tra yes. Christmas tradition but I wasn't typically celebrating Christmas itself with Germans Okay. But what about um what about bugs? Did you find anything interesting in Germany? Um lots of cool stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's some of these some species are actually ones that we also have here, but they're invasive. Um or at least non-native. Uh European hornets, for example. I love them. They're big, they're beautiful. Very but impressive. They're not in Canada? They are they actually are here. Um, okay. Yeah, they've 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 managed to find their way over here. I don't think they're causing all that many problems, but uh, they're not native here. Um, so why why do you love the European hornet so much? They're big. Ah, <laughs> big and charismatic. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, they are um, hornets. Okay, hold on here. Tell me the difference between a hornet and a wasp. A hornet is just a type of wasp. So, oh, it's a type of wasp. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the, the true hornets are in the genus Vespa. And Vespa literally means wasp. <laughs> um, and uh, but but colloquially, we'll often refer to just large wasps that are not in the genus Vespa as hornets, like bald-faced hornets, for example. They're not true hornets, but they're big, so we call them hornets anyway. So the hornets are just bigger than wasps. They're just, or, or sorry, they're they're a type of wasp, but they're they tend to be huge. Yeah, pretty much. Ah. Oh. Okay, do they bite? Um, they might. I don't know. I, I haven't tried. <laughs> they, 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 could, they could definitely sting. Well, the females can sting. The males can't. Okay. But that's, that's the case for bees and wasps in general, um, that only the females can sting because um, the stinger is actually modified lady parts, which is, you know. The, hold on. Hold on. <laughs> let me think about that. Hold on. <laughs> Hold on. The stinger is a modified lady part. Yep. <laughs> so it's the ovipositor. So like the, the part they would use to, to lay eggs. It, oh. um, it's been modified to uh, have venom. And uh, I, I'm not to sure. To bring you great pain. Hmm? It's, been, it's been modified to bring you great pain, essentially. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so for, for to defend themselves and in the case of wasps it's also for well for a lot of species anyways for hunting okay wow i'm just sitting with that idea because I, I had no idea you've just like given me one of those like you know moments where you've like taken the words out of my mouth because i have no no idea what to say next um but that's a really good tidbit about uh about wasps and it's wasps and, and bees and, and ants. Bees, like, yeah. Anything which has a stinger like in that group, um, if it can sting you, it's female. The, the males, I also did not know that. The, the males, I think some in some species, they might try to bite you, but they can't really do all that much. And so if you can identify the sex of a bee or a wasp or whatever, um, it's really useful because <laughs> it means you know how careful you need to be with this thing. Wow, because I knew I knew that mosquitoes. I think it's only females as well, right? It's, for mosquitoes, it's only females that bite, but that's for for other reasons. So it's um, they need blood to um, I think like for egg development, and obviously males are not doing that, so that's why only wow. the females bite. The both both males and females when they just want food for themselves, they will drink nectar. Okay. Huh. I mean, this is really cool. It, you know, what's funny is that one of the things when I started this podcast, um, I started getting, you know, requests here and there and people were like, bring on a bug expert, <laughs> bring on somebody who could talk about little creatures outside of the, the microscopic stuff that I usually talk yeah. about. So, you know, it's, it's, it's fun. And, and I've, I know that you do some photography as well, Hannah. And um, one of the things that really I found uh, really beautiful on your website is the pictures that you've taken of caterpillars. <laughs> They're just beautiful. Uh, caterpillars are kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you, uh, is that, um, is that a creature that you study for fun as well? Um, I think I, I have kind of a typical appreciation for caterpillars. I think most people like caterpillars. They're cute. Right. Some of them are soft. Right. 
Um, but uh, I actually find other insects more interesting usually. Um, like what? Well, flies, for example, are just mm. such a ridiculously diverse group. Um, and also some of them are really impressive mimics. So the uh, so hoverflies are this one group of flies. You've probably seen them. They, they're, they'll often hover in place. And a lot of them look a lot like bees and wasps. So you, you may well have seen oh, them, yeah. but thought that they were bees or wasps because they're, they're often striped like black and orange or black and yellow. And you'll see them on and around flowers. But uh, once you get the hang of it, you can recognize them as flies. Um, the, the heads look different. The antennae are typically much shorter. And if you can get a really good look at it, you can see that they only have two wings rather than four, but that can be harder to see. I've actually totally seen these creatures. What, mm. what do you call them again? Hoverflies. Hover yeah. They're, I'm write this down yeah, so I can look it up. They're also called flower flies or surfids. But yeah, look up look up any of those names and you'll find you'll find the group. Flower flies. Yeah. Yeah, I've definitely seen those and have mistaken them for some sort of wasp or yeah. something because so they are mimicking the behavior of wasps? Yes, yes. Um the, the appearance and in many cases behavior as well. Um they're visiting mm. flowers because they they're eating pollen or I, I think I'm not sure if they drink nectar as well, but I'm fairly certain they eat pollen at least. Um and uh but yeah, they, they want predators to think that they are more dangerous than they are. Wow. And and humans, obviously, because I definitely stay away when I see yeah. them. I don't. But do, do they, so they don't sting? No, 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 they can't. They're completely oh, so harmless. Cool. Can't sting, can't so bite. Cool. They're just cute little flies. But uh, they want you to uh, think that they can sting. Wow. That's really... Uh, thank you for sharing that, mm -hmm. because honestly, I've always wondered. Yeah. And there's some that look exactly like like wasps or exactly like bees. Some, some of them are really impressive mimics. Others are not so convincing, but I guess when they just buzz past you, you don't see them clearly enough and it's good enough. Um, but I, I like the ones that are, that like almost trick me <laughs> where I have to look at them a second time before I realize that what, that, what they actually are. Is there actually like a whole class of creatures that are called mimics? It's it's not like one, you know, cohesive group, but there are like mimicry is very common in nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I interviewed an expert in biomimicry and bio-inspired design and all that. So we talked a lot, a lot about how humans study nature to create sustainable things, um, designs and things like that. But I didn't know that other creatures mimicked other creatures yeah you know other than humans it's extremely extremely common um and certain that there's there's certain i guess models which are very popular so pretending to be a bee or a wasp it's a good idea so these these flies do it um i think there are even some beetles that will that have kind of stripes and so they're, they're also sort of mimicking wasps but then ants are another very popular model because ants are scary they have the they're 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 tough. They bite. They've got these huge colonies. A lot of predators will avoid them, and so there are a huge number of insects and spiders that will pretend to be ants. What? I did not know that. Look up ant mimicking what? spiders. Like I some of them are am... amazing. <laughs> so spiders are trying to mimic ants. Yeah, yeah, because 
Wow. Especially little little tiny jumping spiders. They they can't really defend themselves all that well, and uh, they know that a lot of predators will just avoid anything that looks like an ant. I've got to admit, actually, I had um, a very heavy, let's say, dislike of spiders until I joined Twitter last year and started seeing a bunch of spider pictures, mm-hmm. spider videos from scientists. Now I love them. I see a spider now and I want to protect its life. Oh, yeah. I lo- um, yeah. They're so cool, especially yeah. the tiny, the tiny jumping spiders. Yeah. They're so cute. Aren't they? I mean, and, and they're harmless, right? Yeah, I mean, they could bite you, but it would just, it would just hurt. <laughs> it's, it, right. And I think you'd really have to force them to bite you. They're not going to bite for no reason. Right. I was reading and I forget who the author is, but I was reading a book um, and there was a chapter on spiders and it was essentially, it it's too, it's inefficient for a spider to, to bite a human. Yeah. If it doesn't have to. Yeah. Well, it's, it's also dangerous. We are very large, potentially predatory, why is it going to put itself in that position unless unless it feels it has to? Right, of course. Um, I want to. We we have about ten minutes left. Um, Hannah, I want to talk to you a, a, about something non science, uh, which is that you're expecting a baby. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's, that's one of the reasons why I haven't been in the lab for a while. <laughs> yeah, you've been posting a lot of uh, cool pictures. Um, and just posts on Twitter, which is something I wanted to bring up during this interview, because not a lot of women who are expecting uh, necessarily talk about it. It's not common in academia, I find. So do, do you find it's, uh, is it an issue to, to be expecting when you're, when you're a woman in academia? Uh, it's definitely going to make things a lot more difficult. So, well, for the past nine months, basically, well, I guess the past right. eight months now, um, I have not been going into the lab. There, There's some chemicals that we work with, which are not really compatible with pregnancy. Um, plus, I've been dealing with some fairly intense fatigue, and then there's also COVID risk. So um, right. that has definitely slowed a lot of things down. Um, and then I'm planning to go on maternity leave for a year. So that's also going to put a lot of things on hold. So I'm still going to try and still going to try and do my research, but uh, things are looking a lot different now than they were before. <laughs> um, it's, it's definitely possible to have a child and also be a scientist, but that doesn't mean it's easy. Right, exactly. And so you said that it's going to pause your research. Is it still your intention to finish your PhD, I guess, afterwards? That's my, that's my current intention. I'm right. really hoping that it'll work out. <laughs> right, of course. No, I mean, it's, um, it's a, you know, a topic of, of conversation that comes up, which is that, you know, it can be harder for, for women in science, especially, you know, if they want to start a family. Yeah, and I'm thankful that my advisor is very supportive. He, well, his, his wife had had a baby very recently, so um, he understands. Right. <laughs> and at Carleton, I, I know a number of female faculty have children themselves. So that's, that's also good, just, just to know that there is that support from, from people who have power. <laughs> um, right. 
and uh, I, I, I'm not certain like how much, I guess how much support will come from the the university per se, but um, at least on the on the part of the biology department, they've they've all been very supportive so far. Oh, that's really cool. And are you um, are you excited about motherhood? Do you find uh, that you're more excited, or or do you find that you're a little bit scared? I'm definitely scared. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's like I, I, I what, yeah, I've taken a prenatal class. They 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 walked us through all the gory details of giving birth. It's just like, yeah, that that sounds horrifying. Right. <laughs> of course, let's not uh, let's not lie about it, right? I mean, it's ter- it's terrifying. I I I can't imagine because I don't have kids. I don't want kids, but I've had a lot of friends, and my sister's gone through childbirth. Um, and it can be absolutely terrifying, but at the same time, I think this is going to be, you're a scientist, you're somebody who's already curious. I'm sure that you're going to, you know, almost study this a hundred percent. Yeah. Well, I've, I've definitely found it really interesting just like seeing how pregnancy affects my body because I didn't know very much about it beforehand. I'd heard some things, but there's a lot of stuff that pregnant women generally don't talk about. Um, like I knew that, you know, like pregnant women have problems with, you know, being tired and stuff. I didn't know beforehand how much of that is in the first trimester. Cause I'm like, well, of course, if you're pregnant, you're carrying all this extra weight. Of course you're going to be tired. Um, turns out in the first trimester, the fatigue is just intense. At least for me, it hit me really, really hard. And I was just unable to do anything for months um and it's because the the body is just using so much energy to build the placenta uh, and it's extremely energetically intense even though the baby's not growing all that much at that time um just building this new organ from scratch takes a lot Isn't out of you amazing is, but isn't it really when you stop and, and pause and think about every step of the way, you know, like you said, the, the building of the placenta, uh, the development of, of, of the fetus, all this stuff, and, and you know, the, how it expands in your body. Um, I've heard that problems like heartburn is, yeah. is an issue. I, I've managed to avoid that. I had some indigestion earlier on, but then um, that went away. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. I, I've had a lot of symptoms that just kind of come and go and you know, aches and pains that will be like horrible for a week and then are replaced with different aches and pains. <laughs> um, so I've, I've had, yeah, some, some typical pregnancy symptoms and others not. <laughs> right. Um, and I've also been just surprised by like how diverse it is. So I was able to avoid really bad morning sickness, which was nice. Um, what I did have though was mild nausea late in the day, which really threw me off before I knew I was pregnant. It's like, hmm, I'm tired all the time, but I feel a little bit nauseous, but only late in the day. Can't possibly be pregnancy. <laughs> and well, wow. it turns out that that is one manifestation of morning sickness that not everyone actually gets sick per se. Some just get really mild nausea and it's not necessarily in the morning. Wow. And so when is the baby due? Uh, late January. Late January, so we're like a month. Well, I think by the time this episode airs, it'll be just a few weeks away. Hmm. <laughs> so that's going to be really exciting. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so, uh, just before we go, then um, you're going to take a year off, and I guess uh, be a full time mom, right? That's the plan. Um, right. 
Yeah, especially with COVID, I really don't like the idea of putting baby into daycare earlier than necessary. And um, everything I've been reading about, you know, just the current advice is if you can, it's it's good to um, like to breastfeed for at least a year, for example. Obviously, not all right. all women can. It's totally fine if you can't or choose not to, but I would like to, and um, there are some benefits to doing so. So that's that's kind of the plan. Of course. Well, I think it's it's a beautiful thing to do. Like you said, if you can do it, I think it's beautiful. You're not going to miss any moments. You're going to see the full development of this mm. little little boy or girl, and uh, I think it's going to be fabulous. And research will always be there. Yeah, that's the thing, right? Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Um. Please go ahead. No. It looks like you're. You want no, to, go, no, go okay. ahead. No more go comments ahead. on that. <laughs> no. Well, I, I'm just going to wrap this up then. Uh, Hannah Davis, thank you so much for joining me. Um, you've you've really enlightened me in, in terms of uh, not just you know fruit flies, but this the I have a lot to Google <laughs> now after this interview. <laughs> so I appreciate that actually. Oh, thank you. I, I always like to yeah. geek out over bugs. <laughs> well, you're always welcome to geek out with, with me again. So um, thank you. I wish you all the best with the little baby and um, all the best with your research afterwards. Thanks. And I wish you all the best too. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you.